0: Um, just one question before I start. How many are familiar with Austin's novel Persuasion? Okay, so this is kind of glossing through a lot of it, so I'm glad a lot of you have a, a, an understanding. I'm going to read it because there's a lot of detail and I don't want to skip anything. So Bitter of Watches of the Night, from Anne Elliott to of Rohan. In an interview with Tom Shippey, Claire E. White asked, although some critics have alleged that the Lord of the Rings relegates women to the background, I have always seen Tolkien as being rather advanced for his time in his depiction of women. Eowyn, the Lady of Rohan, who sneaks off to be a warrior, certainly is no shrinking violet. What is your opinion on this subject? How did Professor Tolkien feel about Eowyn? Shippey replies, I can only point to the scene in the Houses of Healing, where there is a careful and sensitive account of what it must have been like for Eowyn, not only trapped while the men rode off to war, but trapped with warm tongue, watching her uncle fall under his spell. Philip O'Boyans, who co-wrote the screenplays for the movies, agrees with Shippey's assessment. Tolkien wrote brilliantly for women. You can't underestimate his understanding of women. As a father of a daughter, he clearly understood the complexity of girls and their needs. He recognized, for example, that Theoden should have been a father to Eowyn. Tolkien's Tolkien's keen understanding of women's emotional challenges is on par with that of Jane Austen. Imagine my surprise when I realized that the life of Eowyn of Rohan in Lord of the Rings bears a surprising parallelism to Anne Elliot of Austen's persuasion. The similarities between these two women as they cross the frontier from the home front to the battle front, including their parental and sibling relationships attitudes towards duty, descriptions of their physical appearances senses of loneliness and motifs of death, choices in husbands and decisions about their futures proves my point. Even though they reside in two very different genres, by the end of their respective novels, these women become independent, resilient, knowing their own minds. In Persuasion, Anne Elliot comes to regret her decision not to marry Frederick Wentworth. Years pass and her life is reduced to a never-ending effort of caring for her family. In Anne's conversation with Captain Havel, she claims that women do not forget as quickly as men do because women remain at home. While men go out into the world to work, and that distraction aids forgetting. Anne explains, yes, we certainly do not forget you so as soon as you forget us. It is perhaps our fate rather than our merit. We cannot help ourselves. We live at home, quiet, confined, and our feelings prey upon us. You are forced on exertion. You always have a profession, pursuits, business of some sort or or other to take you into the world immediately and continual occupation and change soon weaken impressions. This observation by Anne about a woman's feelings preying upon her because she is confined at home is echoed in Gandalf's observation about Eowyn at her bedside in the Houses of Healing. My friend, says Gandalf, you had horses and deeds and, and the free fields but she, born in the body of a maid, had a spirit and courage at least the match of yours. Yet she was doomed to wait upon an old man whom she loved as a father and watch him falling into a mean, dishonored dotage. And her part seemed to her more ignoble than that of the staff he leaned on. Thank you that Wormtongue had poison only for Theoden's ears. My lord, if your your sister's love for you and her will, still bent to her duty, had not restrained her lips, you might have heard even such things as these escape them. But who knows what she spoke into the darkness alone in the bitter watches of the night, when all her life seems shrinking and the walls of her bower closing in about her, a hutch to trammel a wild thing in. What is striking about these two passages are the four parallels. See how the men have active lives, the use of fate and doomed, the emphasis on the praying feelings, and more specifically how home is described as combined or shrinking, the walls are closing in. This comparison shows that the experiences of Anne and Eowyn are very much alike. Both women have problematic paternal and sibling relationships. Anne's mother died when she was 14 and her father, Sir William, is a vain man. He would have give up, given up anything for his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, who is very handsome and very like himself, but his other daughters he considers of very inferior value. To her father and Elizabeth, Anne is nobody. Her word had no eight. Her convenience was always to give way. She was only Anne. Even at the end of the novel, Sir Walter still has no affection for Anne. This attitude is echoed by Elizabeth, who states, she is nothing to me. As C.S. Lewis observes, she she is denied the consciousness of mattering. Anne was continually overlooked and never consulted by her family from anything, from how to economize on their spending, to which house to rent in Bath. A Mrs. Clay goes to Bath as a companion for Elizabeth, while Anne is sent to cheer up her younger sister, Mary, who often considers herself ill. For, as Anne explains, no one will want her in Bath. The people who value Anne are Lady Russell, who considers her a dear and most highly valued goddaughter, her sister Mary's in-laws, the Mosgroves, who have claimed her as part of the family, and her infirm school friend, Mrs. Smith. Eowyn has lost lost not one, but both of her parents. She and her brother Eomer are raised by their uncle, King Theoden. Despite being a shield maiden, she stays at home to take care of her uncle during his illness. Theoden does not have Sir Walter's vanity, but once healed, he immediately states his intention of riding into battle against Isengard. Though Theoden names Eomer his heir, he looks for another man to stay behind to rule the people. It is Hama the doorward, who reminds him that Aemir is not the last of the house of Aer. His sister Eowyn is fearless and high-hearted, all love her. Theoden agrees and she is proclaimed the leader of the Aerlingas in his absence. Despite this slight, Eowyn loves her uncle, her uncle like a father and she demonstrates her love and loyalty to him as she protects his body from the Nazgul. In contrast to Anne's father, Theoden speaks fondly of Eowyn at his death, calling her his dearest daughter. Eomer also clearly loves his sister, but like Theoden, his behavior establishes a pattern of neglect. He knows that Grima Wormtongue desires his sister, and he admits that she had confided her, confided her care and dread and growing fear concerning the king's bewitchment to him, but he does nothing about it. His claim that he would have slain Grima is empty. It is Gandalf who saves her. Eomir, seeing his fallen sister on the battlefield, assumes she is dead. He does not even get off his horse to check. Instead, he returns to the battle crying death. In the Houses of Healing, Aragorn asks for Eomer's opinion about what is wrong with his sister, but he does not know. He is silent too when confronted by Gandalf. Despite his love for his sisters, it is clear that he has taken her for granted. He is neither observant nor protective of her. Just like with Anne, it is not the people closest to Eowyn who see her value. It is Gandalf who sees her service, suffering, and bravery. Hama, who trusts her to lead the people, and Faramir, who sees beyond her sour sorrow to the high and valiant lady that she is. Eowyn and Anne have differing ideas about duty. Anne prizes it highly, while Eowyn feels trapped by it. Eow- uh, Anne equates duty with usefulness, and this brings her gladness. She is able to organize people, giving them direction and purpose, when their emotions impede their ability to make decisions. She is the one they look to when someone is ill or injured. Anne concludes, a strong sense of duty is no bad part of a woman's portion. Eowyn disagrees. Duty is a cage that imprisons a person until she forgets her dreams and accepts a more confined life. She is tired of people using duty to control her. She feels that, it, that she has done her duty, she took care of her uncle while he was ill, and now she wants to make her own decisions. Eowyn bitterly resents being left to the housekeeping while the men ride off to win renown. She was not raised to be a serving woman. She is a shield maiden of the House of Errol and can ride and wield blade. The physical appearance of both women mirror their internal conflicts. Listen to the floral terms describing them. Anne has lost her bloom, while Eowyn is like a frozen lily. In her youth, Anne was a very pretty girl, but her bloom had vanished early. Her outward physical manifestation represents the loaf of hope she bears internally. When Wentworth returns, Anne's hope of his love for her gains strength, and by the end, of the end of the novel, her looks are restored. She enjoys a second bloom and is now again considered very pretty. When Aragorn first sees Eowyn in the Golden Hall, she is described as fair of face, slender and strong, slender and tall, strong and stern as steel, but fair and cold. While Aragorn still considers Eowett a fair maiden in the Houses of Healing, he expands upon his first impression of her unhappiness, when he describes her as a white flower, straight and proud, shapely as a lily, but hard, which seems to imply she is brittle. Still fair to see, but stricken and soon to fall and die. Eomer attributes this frost to her unhappiness and love which first began at her first look at Aragorn. Fairmer too, comments on her beauty. Her loveliness amid her grief would pierce his heart. It is Faramir's declaration of love that changes Eowyn's heart, ends her winter, and allows the sun to shine on her. C.S. Lewis observes that Anne is a solitary heroine. She is very much alone, relationally, physically, mentally, and emotionally. She has her friendships with Lady Russell and Mrs. Smith, but she is not considered a valued companion by her family. Anne is left at home each year when Sir Walter and Elizabeth go to London for the season. She makes all the preparations for the new tenants moving into College Hall while her father and sister move on to Bath. The only time she leaves home is to visit her sister Mary at Uppercross, but even there she is left alone to take care of her injured uncle while her sister and brother-in-law can dine at the big house. Anne deliberately cultivates a habit of solitude wherever she goes. She is part of yet detached from the walking party to Winthrop. She plays the piano at the dinner parties so others can dance desiring nothing in return but to be unobserved. She is also physically alone at Kellitch Hall after her sister and father depart, and at Uppercross when she sends the Mosgroves off to Lyme Regis after Louise's accident. Finally, Anne does not have anyone to confide in. She cannot talk to Lady Russell about her feelings for Captain Wentworth. She has to keep that flow of anxieties and fears to herself. Eowyn is also a solitary and isolated figure. She has no female companionship of her own station and no one to talk to in the bitter watches of the night. She has little contact with her brother who is continually in the fields or lately imprisoned. Eowyn is seen standing alone dressed for battle before Meduseld while the men ride off to battle against Saruman. Anne's motif of death is seen in her practice of self-mortification. John Wiltshire explains that it is in self-correction that she defines, fortifies, and even enjoys her sense of self by reflecting on her own experience and conduct. When Mary tells her that Wentworth considers her appearance altered beyond his knowledge and fully submitted in silent, deep mortification, feeling sorrow for her faded looks, she denies herself any public displays of emotions often going off by herself to gain control of them. Anne recognizes a sense of dying to herself, moving from Kellynch Hall to Uppercross and then on to Bath, a lesson she calls, the art of knowing our own nothingness beyond our own circle. Resigned that with each change in location, she must face a total change of conversation, opinion, and idea. Eowyn, on the other hand, has a death wish. She tells Aragorn that she does not fear either pain or death. On the battlefield, Mary realizes Eowyn's expression is without hope, that she is seeking death. Aragorn, after healing her body, admits that he cannot heal her emotional state, her hopelessness, and if she wakes to despair, then she will die, unless another another healing comes with which he cannot bring. Several times during her convalescence, she expresses her wish to die in battle like her uncle, who now has both honor and peace. There are several potential suitors, along with unwise attachments, in the lives of Anne and Eowyn. Anne's cousin Sir William Elliot is seen as a potential husband for Anne, not in the least because he will inherit Kellynch Hall. But Anne, even before she knows his true character, tells her friend Mrs. Smith that she will not accept his proposal, and once she understands his intentions, Anne distances, distances herself from him. Eowyn's unwelcome suitor, Grima Wormtongue, is vastly different from Anne's cousin. Gandalf perceives the intent of Wormtongue when he keenly observes, too long have you watched her under your eyelids and haunted her steps. Gandalf's rescue may have prevented her from being a victim of marriage by capture. As Gandalf reassures Eomer, Eowyn is safe now. While Grima Wormtongue is an unwanted suitor, Aragorn is a suitor who does not want her. Eowyn is aware of him as a potential husband almost immediately, but when she declares her love for him at Dunharrow, she hides behind the mutual feelings the company has for Aragorn. But she slips in her use of the intimate pronouns thee and thou instead of the more impersonal you. Faramir recognizes her love as admiration, while Aragorn dismisses it as as a shadow and a thought. He also believes that Eowyn does not love Aragorn, As much as she simply wants and deserves to be loved. The men that Anne and Eowyn marry have several characteristics in common. First, both men are originally rejected by their families. Sir Walter thinks Anne and Captain Whitworth's engagement a very degrading alliance, while Lady Russell calls him a stranger without alliance or fortune, and is instrumental in breaking this engagement. He is in fact all potentiality, And when Anne sees him again eight years later, all of his confidence had been justified. He had risen in rank and amassed a fortune. Their second engagement is met with no objection by her father, and Lady Russell accepts him as a son. To say that Faramir is unappreciated by his father is a gross understatement. (laughs) Yeah. Boromir is the favorite son. Denethor tells Faramir that he wishes he had died instead of Boromir. He questions Faramir's judgment and loyalty, calling him a wizard's pupil. He shows contempt for Faramir's character, believing he does not have the qualities needed to face the current danger. When when Denethor sends Faramir out what amounts to a suicide mission, he asks his father to think better of him should he return. But Denethor retorts, that depends on the manner of your return. Gandalf's prediction that Denethor will will remember he loves Faramir ere the end is fulfilled when Faramir is grievously injured, except except that Denethor mourns more about the ending of his dynasty than the death of his son. After the war, Aragorn shows his regard by making Faramir Prince of Illithian, and Eomer announces the troth plight of his sister to him. Second, Anne and Eowyn marry military men and are considered war brides. Captain Wentworth is in the British Navy on shore leave during the brief peace between Napoleon's first exile on Elba and his final exile in St. Helena. While Anne has a dread of future war, she gloried in being a sailor's wife. Faramir, as captain of of Gondor, fights in several actions during the War of the Ring. Melissa Smith observes that while Eowyn ultimately marries Faramir, she forms an earlier attachment to Aragorn, and it is in these courtships that cast her in the role of a war bride. She is in a sense both the war bride left behind when Aragorn leaves her at Dunharrow, and the foreign war bride when she leaves her par- people to marry Faramir and settle in Gondor. Third, the husbands the women choose seem to want equality in their marriages. Once Anne and Wentworth reconcile, their happiness is greater because of their long their long separation has given them maturity more equal to act, more justified in acting. Wentworth admits that he has learned to appreciate her steadiness of principle and the resolution of a collected mind. The 95 film version of Persuasion ends with her aboard her husband's ship, an artistic license that is logical considering her sister-in-law's practice of sailing with her husband, Admiral Croft. Anne and Wentworth have the advantage of maturity of mind, consciousness of right, and one independent fortune between them. Faramir continually continually places Eowyn and himself as equals in the Houses of of Healing. Additionally, they both require direct, simple speech from each other. He asks her several times if she loves him before finally declaring his love for her. Not only does Faramir clearly see Eowyn, but he also requests that she see him. Faramir sees Eowyn not as an icy fair maiden, an overlooked sister, or a brave but oppressed maid, but as an equal worthy of giving and receiving love and of determining her own path. Hatcher concludes with Faramir, Eowyn will enjoy an equal partnership throughout throughout life and because Eowyn takes an active role in that relationship, they can be seen as more of a modern ideal for marriage, the uniting of equal life partners. Anne Elliot and Eowyn of Rohan choose to change the trajectory of their lives. Anne leaves her position as the family's caregiver and is at her husband's side, presumably on his ship, while Eowyn renounces all that she once claimed to desire and declares a new purpose, as one who does not take life but preserves it. This comparison of the parallel lives of Anne Elliot of Persuasion and Eowyn of The Lord of the Rings demonstrates that J.R.R. Tolkien can write as compelling a female character in high fantasy as any in women's literature. This boundary crossing is seen in their remarkably similar emotional responses to being homebound, their broken relationships with their families and their opinions about duty and how their physical appearances reflect their loneliness and in in the motifs of death. It is also seen in their responses to welcome and unwelcome suitors, especially in their choice of husbands and how they become independent and resilient women who know their own minds and make their own decisions about their futures. Questions? I have, uh, yeah. I, I was doing some other
1: writing, but I, uh, we have Eowyn rescuing, um, uh, it, you know, stepping into mm-hmm. the action moment, but would you say that Anne, in the moment, um, when they're at, um, uh, uh, on the quayside, when yep. Louisa falls and crashes, yeah. and she takes action, and Wentworth is like, Anne knows what to do, Yes. is that her moment, like, Eowyn? rescue
0: and being active. She she does it twice. She also does it when the nephew um, falls and breaks his collarbone. That's part of her ability to care for people is that when things fall apart, she's at her clearest. I mean, she is able to to identify the, the situation and then send everyone else out to do what needs to be done. And that's kind of one of the ironies that when Wentworth wants her to stay behind and take care of Louisa and help Mrs. Hovel, Mary throws this colossal fit and then doesn't actually help at all. So when Anne gets back to Uppercross, one of the things that she really likes, and I had to cut, this was 19 pages long on Monday. This has been (laughs) cut. One of the things she does is she's able to get the Musgroves, send them back to Lyme Regis, and what they do is they take all of Mrs. Hovel's children and, and adopt the children so that Mrs. Hovel can really look after Louisa. And so that, yeah, that's, that's her superpower.
1: Within the context of the world that Anne is in, that is her moment of action. Yeah. She's, a, she's proactive and step in. Yeah,
0: able she's, she's able to see it so much clearer. Um, and the other, like I said, most people just freeze and she doesn't. Right. Yes? Yeah, that got cut out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you pierced me heart and soul. Oh, yeah. I actually had the whole letter in there, the and it was... Huh? You share, will you publish?
1: Will you share the book?
0: Yeah, I'm... This... This is a beast. I hadn't realized. it. Um, I took the, uh, the Shaping of Middle-earth class last spring, and that's where I was reading, again, Gandalf's speech, and I went, I've heard this before, and I ran to my persuasion, and flipped through it, thank you, the movie was very close to it, read it, and went, oh, I just found something. (laughs) I found something, and I have done, I'm a librarian, I have done extensive look. Um, There is very little, the letters mention Anne Austen, or um, um, Jane Austen twice, his daughter and his sister, or his daughter and his wife went to a play of Emma, and he mentions it in one of the letters to his sons, and then um, Skull and Hammond mentioned the fact that he vacationed in Lyme Regis. But, I mean, there's nothing else out there that I know of. But, yeah, I love, I love that comparison. These really strong men that these women marry. Yes. No.
2: So this is William Morris and it's okay. sort of a romance by William Morris that Tolkien stated he loved and had an influence on the Lord of the Rings. Um and there is a character in there um, who is called uh The Bride. Uh-huh. <laughs> a stir in the throng and it opened and a warrior came forth with the innermost of the ring of men arrayed in good glittering war gear beardless smooth cheeked, exceeding fair and face was the boy of a pale somewhat haggard eyed and so he goes yeah up, okay. and it's so obviously eowyn yeah and tolkien steals this and it, but it improves on it yeah it in various other ways um and it may be Yeah, I'm well, um, not sure how he, he could
0: escape it as an Englishman. But
2: right. <laughs> right. yeah. Um he had a soft spot for uh light regis because it was personal, actually. He holidayed there many times. Yeah. Um that persuasion was set there. Mm-hmm. He read a book that's set somewhere you know, yeah, it gives it an extra dimension. Um, and then one just one last point a woman who uh, wrote a memoir about her time posing as a soldier in the back of the yeah. so she managed Ooh, okay. to get to the front line nearly Yeah.
0: What I found interesting, and um, part of this started as a different paper. Um, I was actually in um, Sarah Brown's class last summer, and I did a paper about how uh, Eowyn is basically a type of what British women went through, because before World War I, they were at home. And by World War II, a small group of them were actually being trained to fight because they went into Europe. Um, as operatives and actually were trained how to do battle and so you look all the way through it because you know there's a lot of feminist writing about Eowyn and you know her conflicting um, idea of her sexuality but then you look at pictures of Rosie the Riveter and a lot of women wore male clothing when they were doing male work. It didn't mean that they weren't feminine you know but it would if she'd, you know, done her hair up like Rosie the Riveter would have been kicked out immediately. But there it's not uncommon that women would wear male work to do the, the factory jobs. And so I found that very interesting that there was that parallel there just in the last century from home to actually in battle. Uh, related to
2: that. Yeah. Sorry? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, away uh, so someone was Spilling any important beans here, but um, (laughs) they pointed out that that in the Hobbit there are no women, and this was a story written for the the Tolkien boys.
0: Yeah.
2: Lord of the Rings, uh, partly written with Priscilla in mind, who is now a you know a a, a a girl um, old enough to 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 follow it, It includes this fabulous woman character.
0: Yeah, Um, so strong,
2: like her father. Priscilla was stuck at home um, while uh, two of her brothers were involved in military training and, and, and Michael's case, action. Um, uh, so, you know, th- th- that all conspires to make it seem likely that, that Tommy would want to create a character that reflected exactly what you are Which is,
0: uh, which and she's so um, strong. Potential. yeah. And I don't, you know, part of when I'm writing this, I don't like to put Aragorn in a bad light or or even Aramir, but when I get to the Halls of Healing and I read that that thing, I'm usually just screaming at the text because she's so strong. And here, um, one of my papers I wrote was there are three people talking and they're all men, and she's silent. She has been talking, but they have ignored her. And once she gets, you know, once they're trying to figure out what's going on, They have all the evidence and have no clue what to do with it. Yes?
1: <laughs> well, because Ottoman is so, you yeah. uh, so removed as to be almost a totem, and Ioreth is kind of, uh, you know, a, a comedy that gets, you know, sort of brought onto the scene and then you know, shuffled off. I would, I would think that.
0: Basically, most of the men are cannon fodder. I mean, that's the way I see it. They they are... I mean, how much do you really know about Gimli? I mean, when you really start writing down how much you really know about a lot... Of, there are a lot of men characters, but they're not as fully... You, you learn so much about Eowyn. The problem that I had, or the challenge I had, is Jane Austen is so obvious. Her, her father doesn't like her. Her sister doesn't like her. And they... Flat out stated. When you're looking at the relationship between the, the siblings, Ameer and Eowyn, it's very subtle. You really have to look at the text. And I spend a lot of time staring at quotes, saying, what is actually going on here? So, um, yeah, there are a lot of men, and there are very few women, but the women we get really have some depth. We, we just see so many men that we don't realize that there are some really good full stories. You know more about Eowyn than you know about most of the other characters, except for Frodo and Sam, because of the way they're written. But I just almost equate it like the Matrix. And you Remember the first time, well, some of you who saw the Matrix and it's all visual and no explanation. You see all these things happening. And I spent a whole weekend going, what did I just see? I don't understand until it started filtering through. And I think oh, that's a lot of what he gives us. He's not telling us what's going on. He's showing us. And he's showing us some way, sometimes obliquely that you kind of have to look at it sideways. And, and it's not so much you're reading into it, but you know, when, when he says Eowyn is safe, what is he, what is he talking about? When um, one quote that I didn't put in is Théoden, um, after he comes out of Medecel, he's standing on the steps, and he looks at, um, at Eowyn and he says, there, you don't have to fear anymore. And it's like, whose fear? what fear is she having? Is she fearing for her uncle? Is she fearing for herself? Okay. Tolkien doesn't say, he just throws it out there and lets you just try to figure out what the fear is. And then you go farther along, and, and Gandalf starts talking about what Grima was really doing, and you see the scope of what that fear is. But any other author would have told us what the fear meant. And I think that's part of what's so much fun about it, is you really have to you have to mine it. You have to really stop and think. Yes? I mean, but I think to
3: your point, I think, I think it is a very varying- Psychological profile of an AON. And I think we can appreciate the level that he goes into in writing that. Um, but I do think that there is the elephant in the room that we have to address, which mm-hmm. is that it's one of two. Yeah. You know, and so just, that, you know, the, the tried and true excuse is he wrote about such life as he knew. You know, mm-hmm. and so he's writing yeah. from a male perspective, so he doesn't go into it. But I, I think a modern audience. More my and and I, I'm not saying that we have to like burn our Tolkien books or anything. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I'm just saying, you know, that's the element that I think that we do have to address at yeah. some uh, point.
1: Well, yeah. like, yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although there are a few, comparatively few women in
3: Tolkien's work, they're central. They're central to the plot, they're central to, especially when you go back to the Summerillion, when you think about the how he keeps uh, making. Mm-hmm. Like, eh, I, I've written many, many papers on this, and I I disagree with people who talk about how you know Tolkien. That's, and now, I'm not going to say Tolkien's feminist. It's totally not a feminist, but. Yeah.
0: Is no measure of quality. You know? Yeah, uh in the back. And, and you, oh, and, and then putting sex
1: aside, I think yeah. if we look at stereotypical gender qualities, then the most well-rounded people in the book have a good balance of female. I'm not gonna say female and male characters, oh, yeah. but you know they're yeah. The yeah. men, the men yeah. who can heal and sing and
0: Yeah. We are at noon, but feel uh, free to stick around. <laughs> Up in front, and then I'll get right here. I was just going to say, when I yeah. first read The the Lord of the Rings, decades and decades ago, I identified first with Mary, and then with Sam, and now I, re- I, I identify with the Hobbits. And I've come to think that in some respects, the Hobbits are almost the feminine of the world. And I was thinking, in the famous letter to Milton Waldman when he talks about... How he wants to publish *The so brilliant and he talks about Luthien, and how he compares. She's a, an example of the small hands, the seemingly weak who do great things, like the hobbits. So he's creating that parallel of the, the small, weak, and as the hobbits, they're family-oriented. They cook. They, you know, <laughs> they are essentially almost a representative of the feminine in the wider world. That's how I was, which maybe why. Yes. Uh, one yeah.
3: last point, um, which uh, yeah. this, this is addressed
2: to. You. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so, so my my take on the, the fact that, that you know there are very few women in the Lord of the Rings is it is a it is a narrative about men going to war, and in that sense, it reflects Tolkien's real life. Um, and you get you get Rosie, who's. Somewhere off in the background, get Arl Wendt, who's off in the background too. And this was a very, very true reflection of the way perhaps the men would speak to each other when they were out, out of war. But uh, I think that one of the reasons that the Erwin revelation works so well is that um, she is cloaked within this uh, very masculine book. Yeah. It's like her suit of art, it's like her, her Dunhill costume. Lord of the rings looks like an all male and all of a there she is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Besides, how many women would actually want to camp that long without a hot shower? <laughs> <I> mean, seriously. <laughs> yes. Uh,
3: well, to, to go back to what you're saying, um, I had a, I have a friend who works in, in World War One and World War II literature, and he, he made, he very perceptibly made the observation that. What World War I did for England was it separated civilians and military mm-hmm. personnel. And what World War II did was bring them back together because they had a yeah. shared experience with them. Oh. So it really helps to find him as a World War I offer when he's separating you know, the civilian life and the c- civilian sphere from the military like you're talking
2: about. Except that right. right. oh, yeah. it more yeah. yeah. of yeah. Yes. yes.
0: Oh, no, sorry. Yeah,
3: so just, just to, uh, uh, something that I, I noticed what, while you were speaking, um, I, I was curious, since you're a librarian, yes. tell us what other kinds of women are like these women that you've uh, spoken about? Immediately comes to mind Burien of Tartt, because I'm always thinking about Brianna of Tartt. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, and again, that, that's kind of another interesting thing, because you, you have both show canon and book canon and ones ahead of the other. So, but anyway, uh, are, are there other women that you would say are like these types of women? Like,
0: like a woman? You know, I don't know, actually. Um, when I tend to read, I don't care if the protagonist is male or female. I just I, I just enjoy the characters. A good story. But, a good story. Yeah, a good story. It yeah. doesn't matter if our hero is male or female. Although I do tend personally, I like those heroes that are close to power and complete and always tend continually screw up and, and are in bad. You know, like um, Miles Corsican and uh, Chris Longknife and uh, Prince Roger from the you know of the Empire of, of Man series. Those are ten, those are my heroes. You know, those are the ones I really love. But with these two, it's just more. I stumbled across it, you know. I was not expecting that there was a correlation, but they realized how much we learn about what anyone's going through when we can, when we can match it to such a, another strong female character. So thank you very much.